This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are going to talk about it all. Dr. Andrew Van Ash is a lecturer in psychology at the University of Canterbury, where he researches moral rationality. His academic training in economics and psychology has informed his interest in agency and divergences from the rational actor model. Specifically, Andy is interested in how people will incur costs to demonstrate that they are moral and to ensure that other people behave morally too. In this podcast, we discuss his work regarding costly trade-offs in reputation management and tendencies to project hidden motives, or so-called phantom costs, onto others. All right, hi everybody. Today I'm with Andy Banash. Andy is a new friend of sorts to me. We got to meet at S. SPSP before the whole world exploded with COVID last year, which was fun. And we had a chat about some of his work back then. And I'm excited to be with him to discuss that work again for the podcast. Um, So his work these days concerns moral rationality and cooperation and reputation management, how people signal towards one another that they are good cooperators. Um, Andy, I'd love to hear about your background and how you became interested in this line of research. Uh, Well, thanks, Amber. Um, It's nice to be here. Uh, So my background, I started out as an undergraduate at Pomona College, and I was really interested in both psychology and economics uh, because it's it's all about human decision-making and what drives that. And in economics, the standard model is that, well, it's money that drives decision making. Um, But I've, as I've learned more and more um, about moral psychology, I've, I've come to the opinion that I think morality drives a lot of behavior. And um, so some of that is people being interested in actually being good people. And some of that is driven by people wanting to show other people that they're good people. Um, and so I've just gotten really interested in, in how morality drives behavior and all of the sort of weird ticks that come along with that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and for a while, your primary focus was on free will and agency. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, I got really interested in free will Uh, I think, yeah, this is retrospective history, but I think I was interested in it because of the moral implications. And when I learned about the broader area of moral psychology, um, as I had already kind of answered some of the, the questions that I was most interested in with respect to free will, I started branching out into other morality related topics. Yeah. And then, so at what phase in your career did you start to branch out of it? Was this as a postdoc? Uh, well, I, I started a little bit earlier than that, actually. I did my PhD at Florida State with Roy Baumeister. Okay. And, you know, a lot of the topics that we worked on were free will related, because that's what both of us were interested in. Mm-hmm. But I started to do a lot of work just sort of as side projects on morality. Mm-hmm. And um, it quickly became apparent that that was the the direction my interests were going. So after I got my PhD, I did a postdoc with Kurt Gray, uh, who's one of the most interesting moral psychologists out there. So that was a really great opportunity to get to work with him. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so... Um, the paper we're going to discuss, Death Before Dishonor, as a starting place. Uh, I'll link to that for the podcast listeners. It's a really fun and interesting read. Um, looking at, at really reputation management. And did you start this work with Kurt Gray? Or I want to say your co-authors were actually from Roy's lab. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Kurt was not involved in that project. Um, this was a project that 
me and a, and a couple of grad students in Roy's lab uh, sort of came up with looking, we're basically just interested in this weird phenomenon where people seem extremely protective of their reputation, um, which I think actually makes sense, but if depending on which direction you come at it, it, it might seem really puzzling. So I mean, to start, your reputation is a non-physical thing. It's just something that other people think about you. So it kind of seems like, why would that be so important? Because, you know, lots of other physical, tangible things, uh, like, I don't know, power over others or money or, uh, you know, a, a giant room full of gold coins or something might be more useful to people and more important to people. But uh, actually, it's your it's your reputation of being a good person that, that I think has extreme value. And yeah, the reason is that I think, well, the, the reason is you have to start from the, the idea that people are social animals and we don't just survive by ourselves. It's not just us, you know, hunting and fishing and, and crafting a living it's it's us working together with others and because that is literally our survival strategy as a species we have to be really concerned with other people thinking that we are worth cooperating with yeah and uh so it's literally a matter of life and death if other people are willing to cooperate with you and so if you develop a reputation of being a really bad person who's not good to cooperate with, then other people aren't going to want to help you and you might actually uh, perish. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to hear about the studies that you did in that paper that um, kind of unveiled to you the extremity with which people would go to protect their reputations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we started out with this sort of general idea that people would be willing to sacrifice lots of really important things in order to protect their reputation. Mm -hmm. uh, but we didn't really know at first how far they would go or in what domains they would do this. Um, so I just started out with a, a quick questionnaire asking people, would you rather go to jail for a certain amount of time, um, but after getting out of jail, your reputation would be cleansed. You'd have no reputational damage whatsoever. Um, or alternatively, you could avoid the jail time entirely and, but have a, a bad reputation for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, what I found is that everyone that I asked was willing to go to jail for at least a week uh, to protect their reputation, which is, I mean, quite striking actually, because a, a week of jail is something that most of us would probably really want to avoid. Mm -hmm. um, but even more shockingly, about half of participants were willing to go to jail for a year. Um, which is, yeah, that's like an amazingly high cost. Um, so I started out with that study and was like, wow, this is, this is a really strong motivation because how many things would people be willing to go to jail for an entire year to avoid? Yeah. Um, so after that study, I, I thought, okay, well, you know, how far can we push this? Can we get people to, to, choose other things over uh, a bad reputation. Mm -hmm. So um, the next study that we ran was asking people, would they, would they rather amputate their dominant hand? <laughs> so quite a, a tremendous cost, or they could have a swastika tattoo on their face that they uh, and the stipulation is you, you can't cover it with a hat or anything. You can't get it removed. 
So this is, you know, just a, a reputational signal that uh, you're a neo-Nazi, basically, or loss of a, a limb. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, you might expect that, like, your hand, your dominant hand is one of your most important things that you have. Uh, but actually, two-thirds of people said that they would rather uh, cut off their hand than have the swastika tattoo. Totally. I would rather, I would rather chop off my hand. And I think you'd be right, actually, uh, because I, I think your reputation uh, would be so irreparably damaged uh, from having that swastika tattoo. Um, I think your life would be much, much worse. Yeah. Uh, you know, you go into the grocery store and they, you know, half the time they probably just kick you out. I mean, it would just be really, really life altering. You couldn't get a job. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So especially these days, I mean, yeah, you'd be in real physical danger at this point. Like in addition to just looking like a bad person, there are also non-reputational costs, but um, yeah. What year was the study run? Uh, it was run probably it was either 2015 or 2016 okay okay um, so it was a little bit before the current um culture war flame up i suppose um but still I, yeah I, I think it would have been yeah it would have been very damaging yeah absolutely anyway i i'm sorry what i think i i cut you off a little bit there so you oh, well yeah, so we we did these couple studies, and then it was like, okay, we got people to cut off their hands. Like, how much further can we go? Um, uh, so, you know, could we get people to ever choose death? I mean, like, you know, how? I don't think you can go much farther than that. So, so that's where we went. So, um, the the reputation in in this case was, uh, so you either everyone thinks that you're a child molester. Um, and there's no evidence for it, so they can't prove it in a court of law and put you in jail or, or anything like that. But just everywhere you go, everyone thinks that guy's a child molester. Mm. Or uh, you just die right now. Yeah. And uh, as it turns out, um, about half of the people chose immediate death over this kind of reputation damage. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I'm curious in these studies, did you like, did the participants understand that they're supposed to keep their character, they're supposed to assume their current character really is the case? Like your participants aren't assuming that they actually are a pedophile or an actual neo-Nazi, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, this is just you as you are, but you've got a swastika tattoo or <laughs> you as you are. Um, but everyone thinks that you're a child molester. So we, we specified that you actually aren't a child molester, um, uh, just that everyone believes that you are. Okay. So how many people, how many people were willing to die to avoid? Half. Wow. Well, wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, and we did one more condition, um, which was, okay, if half the people are willing to choose immediate death, um, what would happen if it was just a posthumous reputation damage? Mm. So the idea is you live a long, happy, healthy life until you're 90 years old, and then you die. And afterwards, after you die, everyone thinks that you're a child molester. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that case, about 20% of people chose immediate death over a long, happy life. Uh, and, you know, you probably wouldn't even, you, well, you would never know that, that everyone later thought that you were a child molester. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, uh, people, 20% of people chose immediate death. Got it. So 20% so of people preferred 
immediate death with no reputation damage after death and the other 80% preferred the full life, but then reputation damage after death. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so did you, you did some um, actual behavioral experiments too, right? Because I think a lot of listeners are going to think, well, that's great, but talk is cheap about what you're willing to sacrifice. Like how many people would come down to it would chop off their hands. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So in all of these scenarios, it's a hypothetical decision that people are making. And, you know, we didn't actually give people a knife and go, okay, you know, uh, we've sterilized this for you. Now go ahead and chop (laughs) off your hand. Um, Obviously, ethically, we can't do that kind of study. Um, Nor would it be ethical to do a study in which we actually ruin someone's reputation. Right. Um, So, so those two constraints make it really difficult to actually test this in a behavioral study. Um, so we did our best. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is what we came up with. So we wanted something that would uh, make people think that their reputation could be damaged, um, but actually wouldn't damage their reputation. And, and we wanted a, a task where uh, they would have to do something that they really didn't want to do so it'd be a very aversive activity but nonetheless that wouldn't be dangerous or harmful to them in any way Mm -hmm. so those are the constraints Um, so what we came up with is participants would come into the lab and they would take an implicit association test so this is a, a common test in social psychology um, it's the, the black-white implicit association test. Now, we won't get into the nuances of how to actually interpret the real test uh, because we gave people false feedback anyway. <laughs> okay. um, so yeah, it's debatable whether this is a test of related to their level of racism, but that's how we framed it to them. Okay. Uh, so we told them that this is a test of how racist you are And after the test is over, we will give you a score uh, that the computer indicates the percentile of racism. So, um, you know, some some people are more racist than others and the computer is gonna give you a score. Um, But what the participants didn't know is that we actually rigged the test. Mm. So there were two possible scores that participants would be given at the end of their test. One was an extremely racist score. So it was, you're in the 97th percentile of racism, uh, you know, more racist than 97% of people. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was obviously, you know, something that we assumed that participants would be uh, quite reluctant to share with others. That would be very reputationally uh, damaging. Mm -hmm. In the other condition, the, the feedback was a sort of moderately racist score. Mm. So we wanted something uh, that wouldn't be too reputation damaging, but also wouldn't be something that participants would be especially proud of. Mm-hmm. So if we had given them a score of, oh, you're in the, the one percentile, so you're one of the least racist participants, uh, they would have been like, great, I want to you know, tell the world about this. Right. So we didn't want that. So we, we chose, uh, you're in the 37th percentile. Um, so it's like, you're not racist, but it's like nothing to write home about either. Um, def- like a little bit racist is not exactly something that you want to be shouting from the rooftops. Mm-hmm. So after they got their score, then we told them, okay, the, the next part is a decision that you have to make. So um, we need some participants to do uh, each of these two tasks. One task is to send an email with your score. So your, your name and your score, and this email will be sent to the entire university. So all the students, faculty, and staff. Um, 
and the the cover story for this is that it's part of a diversity initiative on campus and we just want a sense of um you know what the campus climate is like mm. uh, but of course the participants sitting there in the in the high racism condition going oh no this is bad <laughs> um <laughs> So, so that's one option. And then the other option, we, again, we wanted something that was very aversive, but something that people would nonetheless not actually be harmed by. Mm -hmm. And that was to put their hand in a bucket of worms for a minute. And uh, so we chose superworms, which are uh, basically giant mealworms. <laughs> Uh, who live in oatmeal and so we've got this this little container of oats uh, just with like about a hundred worms in there um, and you can see them wriggling and, and squirming around and you can put your hand in this bucket of worms all the way to the bottom um, and uh, and hold it there for a minute okay so what was the cover story on the worms uh, so the cover story on the worms was that uh, we were pre-testing a, a measure of disgust and we needed to um, get some participants uh, to say how disgusted they were by these worms. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Okay, so, so they had to stick their hand into this gross bucket of worms. Yeah. Um, and, and so... The, the dependent variable in this study was just what percentage of people would put their hand in the worms versus uh, choose the reputation damage. Mm. Um, and what we found is that in the, in the reputation damage condition, in, in the high racism condition, uh, about a third of participants put their hand in the worms. Mm. Um, it, this actually seemed a little bit low um, to us, but yeah. you have to remember that because we were under ethical constraints, um, participants knew that they could opt out of the study at any time. And so a few of them actually chose to opt out instead of uh, continuing on with the study. Mm. Um, other participants, uh, sort of saw the ruse and thought like, there's no way that you're actually sending this email out. <laughs> um, and, and because they didn't believe us, you know, they, they didn't choose to put their hand in the worms. Um, and still others thought that they could talk their way out of it. So they thought like, sure, this email is going to go out, but um, I'll just explain to my friends that like, look, I'm not racist. You know me. Yeah. Um, now, I don't, I don't know that that's, I think that might be optimistic thinking that you could talk your way out of that situation. Mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, a lot of participants thought that was the case. It, was that through like a debriefing or something that you gathered that? Yeah, we had a, a qualitative question at, at, toward the end asking them to explain their decision. Mm. Um, and that's actually, that's something, that's a methodological detail that I think is really valuable to add to basically every study. Mm. Um, even when you're doing um, MTurk studies, asking them to explain one of their answers is actually a really good way of doing an attention check. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you recall, like, whether dropout rates in the study were higher in um the high racism condition um there weren't too many people who dropped out i think it was only like one or two people okay okay um, so not enough yeah. to really compare um yeah. interesting interesting so what sorts of other was that the that was the one behavioral were there any other behavioral studies that were done uh yeah we did we did one more um mm -hmm actually at the behest of reviewers, because reviewers thought that, well, how aversive is this worms condition? Is that really like all that bad? And um, our, our thinking was, yeah, that was literally the worst thing that we thought that we could get away with ethically. Mm -hmm. um, but they suggested that maybe we could put people in pain. Um, and so we thought, sure, we can, 
we can do that. Um, there's a cold presser paradigm that's been used in a lot of literature. Um, and so we did a, a close replication of the study with that different dependent variable where, so they do the same implicit association test, they get the same feedback, but then uh, the choice is instead of putting their hand in the bucket of worms, it's uh, we need you to put your hand in this ice water until it's as, until it's extremely painful. Mm. Um, and actually about two thirds of people were willing to do that. So <laughs> yeah, so majority of people were willing to put themselves in a, a fairly high amount of pain in order to avoid reputation damage. Wow. Wow. Interesting. So after, after this study, how have you extended your work on um, understanding what's going on with this reputation management stuff? Yeah, well, I've, I've started doing a few different things. Um, one paper that I just published with um, Holger Schosta at the Norwegian School of Economics looked at some of the mental processes that lead us there. Mm. Um, so what we looked at is future thinking. Okay. So uh, we think of reputation protection as a, a trade-off between the present and the future. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of situations that we find ourselves in where we could, we could take a short-term benefit. You know, if you could steal something from the local store and probably most of the time you'll get away with it. Um, you could uh, uh, not pay your taxes for a few years and probably get away with it. Um, there, there are lots of little grifts that we can do to other people that in the short term will be beneficial, but in the long run, uh, you're likely to get caught and uh, your reputation would suffer dramatically. Mm. So uh, we predicted that people who think more about the future consequences of their actions will be more likely to protect their reputation than other people who think less about the future. Mm. And uh, we ran three studies and, and found support uh, in all three. Um, so one of the studies looked at correlational uh, findings. So looking at individual differences and in how much people think about the future versus the present. Mm. Um, and then uh, we used similar kinds of vignettes uh, like the, you know, chopping off your hand. Um, we had some, some different vignettes as well, but similar, the same kind of idea where you're asked to choose between an action that would protect your reputation versus an action that would uh, benefit you in the short term. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of them was asking about in a natural disaster, if you owned a gas station, would you, would you do an upcharge on the price of, of bottled water? Mm. Um, so, you know, this is an option that people have, right? You can, uh, you can price gouge your customers and take advantage of, of a disaster situation. Um, but in the long run, that will probably tarnish your reputation and you might, you might gain business in the short run, but lose it in the long run. Mm. And what we found is that people who are, are more dispositionally, uh, thinking about the future are less likely to price gouge people. They're less likely to do these kinds of reputationing, reputationally damaging things uh, than people who just mostly think about the, the present. And it was, was reputation, like fear about reputation damage, was that um, singled out or could it be like a third explanatory variable there? Um, yeah, we, uh, we did some mediation analyses um, that found that uh, concern about reputation mediated this effect. Interesting. Um, and some of the other vignettes were not about price gouging. They were about other kinds of things that you could do that would uh, damage your future reputation. 
Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you also mentioned that, um, sort of thinking about time might trigger different sorts of like signaling off different sorts of, um, interpersonal qualities. So I'm thinking about like in sexual relationships, if, if a person is oriented towards a short versus a long-term relationship, they would like signal off different virtues and that sort of a thing. Was that your work or was that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's some work that I've, uh, just finished up. It was one of my master's students, uh, thesis. Mm. And um, so what we did together, uh, that was Caitlin Hutchinson. Um, so what we did together is we asked people um, what kinds of things that they would want to signal to a potential partner for either a short-term or a long-term relationship. Mm. Um, and but it, you know, talk is cheap, right? So, so what kinds of things would you be willing to sacrifice? What would you prioritize uh, in these situations? Um, and there's a lot of work on uh, warmth versus competence mm -hmm. uh, that we based this on, uh, work by Susan Fisk. Um, so the idea is that uh, there are at least two aspects of our personality that we really would want to showcase to others. So one is that we're a warm person, that we're kind to others, uh, you know, we're going to be nice to you. And the other is competence, that mm -hmm. we know what we're doing. And in a sexual situation, of course, um, you know, these have uh, specific meanings. Um, <laughs> So, you know, sexual competence would basically be you know, how, how good are you in bed? And sexual warmth would be, you know, are you sort of a, a kind kind of person that, that you would enjoy being around? Hmm. And uh, so essentially what we found is that people seeking short-term relationships if they're forced to choose, of course, they'd like to showcase both of these traits. But if they're forced to choose, if they're going for a short-term relationship, they, they prefer to signal competence. Interesting. But if they're going for a long-term relationship, they prefer to signal warmth. Um, and, and we found this both in terms of individual differences in sociosexuality, so what kinds of things, what kind of relationships people dispositionally are interested in. And we also manipulated this by having them think about, okay, if you were seeking a, a short-term partner, what sorts of traits would you focus on sharing? And if you were focused on, if you're looking for a long-term partner, what traits would you want to share? Interesting. Yeah, so the, the idea here is that people are being strategic in which aspects of reputation they present to others. So it's not just that we want to be seen as good people overall. Of course, we, we do want to be seen as that. Um, but for particular goals that we're focusing on uh, in planning for the future, we were targeting our reputation that we're sharing with others to achieve those specific goals. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and it, and it makes sense, you know, it makes sense. Um, so what other, have you explored anything else besides, um, like orientation towards time that can affect reputation, how we strategically manage reputation? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, another, another one of my students, um, Liz Stewart uh, did some work looking at what kinds of people are more concerned about their reputation. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did this based on geography. So uh, the idea was that if you're in a, a big city, then you're relatively anonymous and you can sort of get away with a lot of things and you won't see the same people on any given day. Um, so you, you wouldn't have to be quite as concerned about your reputation. But if you're in a small, close-knit community, like a small town, 
where everyone knows everyone else's business, um, then you really would have to be a lot more protective of your reputation in those contexts uh, mm. because you just can't get away with anything. Um, and so we, we looked at urban versus rural participants. Um, so, you know, we didn't tell them that that was what we were looking at. We just asked them to make reputation uh, decisions, uh, just like in, in the other studies. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end of the study, we asked them, you know, where are you from? Are you from a small town? Or are you from a big city? And, and we found uh, an interesting effect that, that people from small towns were more concerned about uh, their reputation uh, than, than people in big cities. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was um, reading this blog post just recently, and it was talking about how um, people are unlikely over the course of their lives to significantly change the population density that they live in. So a person who's born and raised in a big city might move to another big city, but they're unlikely to move into a town. And, um, and vice versa, people who are born in small towns and raised there, they're not that likely to, to move to a big city and, and remain there long term. Um, and the, this blog post was kind of relating that to this issue of political polarization and how the experience of being in a big city versus a small town, that, that population density really um, impacts the experience of one's life and you know what what political issues seem more salient than others and um i kind of like it's interesting to me it makes me wonder about just reputation management differences as also related to partisan membership like it, it makes me wonder if conservatives tend to be um more protective of their reputations overall and what some of those mediators might be, you know, like I think, I think conservatives are also associated with high disgust sensitivity. Um, and that just kind of seems to, some of these elements seem to gel with what you're saying to me. Have you thought about that much? I haven't thought too much about that specific issue. And I, I don't know of any data that would suggest that conservatives or liberals would be more concerned with their reputation. I, I think that's just an open question. Yeah. Um, I suspect that one thing that might be going on is that conservatives are concerned with their reputation among conservatives mm -hmm. and liberals, the same thing, right? They're concerned about their reputation among liberals. Mm -hmm. And so they'll do things that would make their own side happy, but maybe kind of piss off the other side. Yeah. Um, and this, this might be part of what's going on in the culture wars is that there's some signaling of, you know, I'm in, I'm in this group and so I'm gonna do this thing that my group doesn't mind me doing, uh, but the other group finds outrageous, um, I, which I, I think might be part of what's going on, but it's pretty speculative at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, my, my PhD student, Scott Danielson, and I are, are looking at how geography shapes people's values um, mm. and whether one of the reasons why people are, are conservative or liberal is, is at least in part based on the communities that we find ourselves in and the ways in which um, that shapes our, our moral values. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, is that also including any like reputation type stuff? Um, like, like I do think, right, that your reputation takes a hit if you're living in an area that is primarily of a different political affiliation than yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think um, some, some of the differences between liberal and conservative communities is the values that people feel safe expressing. Mm -hmm. um, so if, 
if you have, you know, say you're mostly liberal, um, but maybe you have one or two issues where you're a bit more conservative and you, but you're in a big city and your friends are all liberal, you may find that you don't feel as comfortable expressing those couple of conservative opinions um, in those contexts. Yeah. And vice versa, of course, right? I, I don't think this is a, a, a unilateral problem. I think if you're conservative and you're um, in, a, in a more liberal context, uh, you're unlikely to share those conservative views as well. Right. Um, but yeah, and, and, and that may end up in some ways shaping at least your public side of your morality, mm. um, which there's some evidence that if, if you have a public opinion about something that that might influence your private opinion. So it, it could end up changing uh, what you actually believe just based on where you find yourself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So shifting gears a bit, you've also, it, you've also done work on um, not just how we manage reputations, but also how we kind of sniff out the moral fiber of other people. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've been working on, I've, I've gotten really interested in ulterior motives mm. as an area of psychology that I, I think is woefully understudied because mm. um, ulterior motives are found all over the place in all sorts of social situations. And I think they have a pretty important impact. Um, yeah. So for example, if you're, if you're looking at uh, conflict between two groups and it, it could be Republicans and Democrats, it could be, you know, the U S and China, you know, it, it could be like any level of, of conflict. It could be uh, two groups in your workplace. Mm. As soon as you start to see the other side as not just a rival that has a, a difference in, in what they prefer to happen, but they actually have an ulterior motive that they want evil to happen. You know, their, their values are so skewed that they want bad things to happen and they've got this hidden motive. I think it, it just immediately sort of ruins the, the dynamic between those groups. Mm. Um, so I, I think this is super important. And, and at an individual level, if you're going out with someone or uh, you're, you're friends with them, and then you get the impression that actually they're not in it just to be my friend, but they have some sort of hidden motive of why they're hanging out with me. And, and really, it's not, it's not that they want to be my friend, it's that they, they want my money or, you know, they want, I, I always pay for the lunch or something and they, that's what they're getting out of it. As soon as that comes into play, it, it has the chance to really ruin that relationship. Yeah. So, so yeah, so my model to explain when people perceive hidden motives is called the trade-off justification model. Mm. And the idea is that in many cases, in many situations, people face trade-offs. And oftentimes it, it may not be an explicit trade-off, but almost every action that we take has some kind of negative consequences. So you might take an action that seems completely good, um, like you're, you're driving a sick friend to the hospital. Like what could be wrong with that? But, you know, that action does emit pollution, right? So there's positive consequences of your friend makes it to the hospital and, and hopefully gets better. But there's also negative consequences of uh, you've emitted a little bit of pollution. Mm -hmm. And then there are other cases where the, the pollution far outweighs the benefit. Mm. Um, I think that people imagine hidden motives when they think 
that the cost of the action outweighs the benefit. Mm. So that when, when someone has knowingly incurred a larger cost for a smaller benefit, it implies that something else is going on. They must know something else about this uh, transaction. Um, so either they have a, a hidden knowledge of some hidden benefit or, or a hidden cost, or maybe they actually desire the harm itself. Hmm. Hmm. Could, could you give me like an example? Yeah. Um, well, so this model was, was designed to explain something called the side effect effect. Mm. And the side effect effect uh, goes like this. So uh, it's based on some vignettes. One of the vignettes is this. So there's a CEO uh, sitting in their office and the vice president of their company comes in and says, we're thinking of running this program. It's going to make the company some profit it's also going to harm the environment. Mm. And the CEO says, well, I don't really care about the effect on the environment. You know, we're in the business of making profit, so let's make profit. So they, they run the program, uh, and sure enough, it makes profit, and it also harms the environment. Mm. Now, when people hear or read this story, the majority of people say that the CEO intentionally harmed the environment. Hmm. Um, and I think the reason for this is that the harm to the environment is something that would require greater benefit to make it worth it than just a little bit of profit. Hmm. Um, a lot of people think that the environment is a sacred thing. And so you would need uh, a really, really good reason to justify harming the environment. Mm -hmm. And the CEO, at least in some people's eyes, doesn't have that. So therefore, there's got to be some hidden motivation going on. Uh, and maybe the hidden motivation is, well, actually, the CEO wants to harm the environment. Hmm. And so what's the alternative? Like if we were to sub in and say, this is a CEO of a company that's trying to find a cure for some, you know, debilitating disease. Yep. Yep. Totally. I, I would predict that that would completely reverse the, the finding. So um, if the, if the, trade-off is justified in your eyes, then you wouldn't see the harm as intentional. So if the, if the oh, vice president comes in and says, we've got this program, it's going to cure COVID, um, but it's going to, you know, it's going to harm the environment. You go, well, you know, <laughs> that's, that's kind of a no-brainer trade-off at this point, right? Like cure COVID and and sure, there's some damage to the environment, but that's clearly not the main intention of this program. The main intention is to do this thing that would improve the world. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the side, of, how is the trade-off justification model different from the side effect effect? So the side effect effect, um, I actually only taught you about half of the side effect effect. So oh, okay. side okay. effect effect is that people think the harm is intentional, but if you make, if you do a very similar case and it's about helping the environment, people don't think that that was intentional. So the way that that works, just to run through the, the scenario, vice president comes in, says we've got this program, it's going to make us profit, it's also going to help the environment. CEO says, well, I don't really care about the effect on the environment. I just care about making profit. So let's run the program. It's going to make profit. Mm -hmm. So of course it does make profit. It also helps the environment, but very few people think that the CEO intentionally helped the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the side effect effect. The, the interesting thing about that is that you just change the valence of the side effect and 
you completely change people's intuitions about whether it was intentional or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the trade-off justification model argues is that the reason for this is not just that you've got a harmful side effect versus a helpful one, mm-hmm. but it's the fact that the harmful one is not justifiable. Interesting. Yeah. And as we said with the, the cancer case, which you, you invented, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just your understanding of my theory predicts, predicts this phenomenon. And, and I'm pretty sure that we just replicated um, our findings that yeah. I, I suspect that your listeners will think that curing COVID and harming the environment, uh, the harm to the environment was not the intentional part. Right. That's interesting. Um... Yeah, I like that. I think my sense is that you're right, that you're on to something with that. So have you published papers on the trade-off justification model? Yeah, um, they've been a little bit underappreciated, so I'm hoping that maybe some listeners will, will start to... Um, appreciate them. <laughs> appreciate them. Um, but yeah, so uh, we've got a, a paper uh, in... Um, JESP uh, in 2017, and then uh, there's a new paper that's hopefully going to come out um, uh, pretty soon on on roles and the side effect effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're doing a similar kind of thing where instead of looking at the costs and benefits and increasing the costs or decreasing the benefits to make it justified, uh, what we're doing is giving people different social roles. Um, so if someone owns a dog and they take the dog to the park and, uh, they, they let it run around, it's not tied up or anything. Someone comes up and says, Hey, uh, you know, tie up your dog. Uh, there's endangered wildlife in this area and your dog has to be tied up. Um, and they go, that's ah, not, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. And then sure enough, the dog goes and, and eats some endangered wildlife. Mm. Well, and then you ask, well, did the person intentionally uh, cause the damage to the wildlife? And a lot of people say, yeah, I mean, that they were supposed to, it was their responsibility based on them being a dog owner. It's their role to make sure that their dog doesn't do damage to other mm-hmm. people or other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we, if we change that scenario just a little bit, so there's still a dog in the park, it's running wild. Someone asks you to, uh, you know, can you tie up that dog? It's, you know, it's supposed to be tied up. And you're like, well, it's not my dog. You know, it's not my role to tie up that dog. Um, and then sure enough, the dog later on uh, eats some endangered wildlife. Um, did that person intentionally endanger the wildlife? And people say, no, it's not their dog. It's not their responsibility. Interesting. There's like, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pieces to consider to this, like the, the role of ownership and who who is the person perceiving whether or not this is justified and is the valence positive or negative like it seems like there's a lot of moving parts here yeah that's right so um luckily we've got a theory that i think makes sense um mm-hmm. but there's still a lot of things to test about it um and interesting implications of it for different situations um and as you said who's whose morality counts, who's, who gets to decide what's justified or not. Um, I, I suspect that it's, it's the, the judge's uh, decision about whether it's justified. Um, so if we're judging someone else who has a different set of values from us, then we might decide that their value system can't really be true. So really they must have a hidden motivation driving them towards their, you know, in our mind, irrational value system. Yeah. 
are, are you familiar with Peter DeShioli's work? Yeah. Okay, I was going to say, you two should collaborate on things. I feel like you're um, in very similar territories here. Um, yeah. Kind of dealing with this complexity of common knowledge and like what is known and what isn't known and how you kind of game theoretic off of what you think another person knows and then try to apply moral judgments on that. Um, it's really cool work. Like this is the type of stuff that gets me kind of giddy about, about um, social psych, all the, all the fun sorts of things you get to do with it. Um, okay. So <laughs> in the, in the past, we talked about this concept of phantom costs and I'm curious kind of how this fit into your work here. Was that, did you come across this as part of the trade-off justification model? Yeah, yeah. Well, so um, what happened is uh, when I first joined Kurt Gray's lab, I gave a presentation on the trade-off justification model and sort of as a throwaway point, I, I had this idea um, wouldn't it be interesting if paying people more money uh, would make them less likely to do things because uh, it sends the wrong signal? Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you, uh, if someone, th this is a study that I've actually run. So, if someone goes around campus offering people cookies, so they go up to people and they say, hey, I've just been eating with my friends. I've got some extra cookies. Would you like one? Mm -hmm. And they offer them a cookie. They've got a, a tub half full of, of cookies. Um, it turns out that about 40% of people will take a free cookie if they're offered one on campus from a stranger. Wow. But, low, but it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, some, some people are on diets. Other people, you know, maybe they just weren't hungry. Um, there's lots of reasons why someone might not want a cookie. Right. Um, but one reason is that maybe it's suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we can make it more suspicious by having them also offer additional things. <laughs> so if that same person uh, goes up to someone and says, hi, I've just been eating with my friends. I've got some extra cookies. I'll pay you $2 if you eat one. <laughs> right. <laughs> this makes it incredibly suspicious. And um, only about 20% of people, so half as many people, will take the cookie in that case. Would they also take the money? I'm, I'm also guessing that those 20% are more likely to be like, I'll take a cookie, but not the two bucks. There were, there were a few people who said, I'd rather not have the money, but I'll eat the cookie. Hmm. Um, but, but not too many people said that. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, we've, we've done a bunch of studies. So one, one concern might be, well, they don't want to be indebted to the person. Um, and that's surely part of what's going on. But I, I think mostly it's the suspicion that offering people too much money makes. Um, so I want to tell you about another study related to that. Uh, which is, so we, we put up these sort of fake Craigslist ads. Um, so they were hypothetical ads. We didn't actually have a, a, a company advertising this. Um, but basically we tell people, look, you are a construction worker and construction workers on average make about $15 an hour. And here's a job posting asking for construction workers and they're paying $15 an hour. How interested would you be in this job? Would you take the job? Uh, what do you think of the pay scale? Are you excited about the pay? Um, and also, by the way, is there anything, um, you, anything suspicious about this job? Are, the, are there any, uh, any, anything wrong you think might be, uh, might be wrong with this job or um, how safe do you think this job is? Mm -hmm. And, and the, the actual word, I should be clear, the actual wording was a little bit less, uh, less suspicious than that. So um, in some of the studies, we just asked them 
to give their opinion about the job and we don't ask any kind of questions that could be considered leading or anything like that. Right. Um, what we find is that if the job is paying the normal amount, no one finds this suspicious and they're moderately happy with the pay and so they're likely to take the job. Now, if you make the job pay slightly less than, than the usual wage, then they're obviously less excited about the money, um, but they also don't find anything suspicious about that. Mm. That makes sense that like the employer is trying to pay them less money. That makes perfect sense. They're trying to save money. Nothing suspicious about that. As soon as you increase that pay by even a little bit of, of money, so if you offer $17 an hour or $20 an hour, people start to find that at least slightly suspicious. Hmm. So they're, they're also excited by the extra money. So th there's two competing forces here. One is the excitement about the money, and then the other is the suspicion that there must be something wrong with this job. There must be some sort of hidden cost. Hmm. Um, so they're imagining a phantom cost that comes along with this transaction. Mm -hmm. Now we've systematically increased the amount of money so that if it's $20 an hour instead of 15, that's a little bit suspicious. Um, but if you raise it to say $50 an hour, now you're more than tripling the normal wage. So mm -hmm. you might expect that people would, would jump for joy and, and go after this job full force, but in fact, they're actually no more likely to take the job at $50 an hour than at $20 an hour, wow. because even though they're excited about the additional money, they're also pretty darn suspicious at that point. Yeah. And then what's really interesting is if you increase the amount of, of pay to $1,000 an hour, the interest in the job actually goes down because people think that it's so suspicious that even though that amount of money would be amazing and life-changing, um, it's just such a suspicious amount that people are not interested in this job anymore. Is it possible they just think that the job is like a faulty ad, like just a mistake, like they, you know, put too many zeros or something? Yeah, so, th so there are lots of different inferences that people could make. So uh, some people do make that inference that it must be an error. Mm -hmm. um, but other people, uh, we ask them to imagine what kinds of things could be wrong with this job. Um, and they come up with things. Um, we, we did a different one, not the construction worker, but you're going to be cleaning up a mess. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> we're paying you way too much money to do that. And the things that people imagined were things like, um, it must be toxic waste. I'm mm. going to get really sick from this or like I'm burying bodies for the mob <laughs> or like, you know, it's, it's not going to be something good. Right. Yeah. Um, now what's really interesting that, um, we, we just replicated this effect. Uh, uh, most of the studies on this so far have been done in the United States, but we wanted to see if this same pattern of results would occur in a different cultural context. Mm -hmm. And so I just ran a study, just got the data the other day um, in Iran. So yeah. very different cultural context, um, you know, not the same kind of capitalist system that we have here. Nonetheless, the pattern of results is exactly the same. Wow. People are, you know, not, not suspicious, slightly below the normal or at the normal wage. They get a bit suspicious at a higher wage. The suspicion continues to grow. And at a super high wage, um, they are really suspicious and so suspicious that they don't want to take the job. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and, it, and it does make intuitive sense, right? Um, interesting. Okay. Well, we're actually... We're actually at time here, but I would love to hear just briefly about some of your next steps and the things that you're working on um, for your future research. Yeah, um, well, some of the things relate to the trade-off justification model. 
Mm -hmm. um, so looking at how that model might explain, I sort of alluded to this briefly before, but differences in values. So if mm -hmm. someone has a different value system from me, um, it might be difficult for me to see from their perspective. Um, and therefore they might make a trade-off in a way that I find to be irrational mm -hmm. and would suggest to me that they have hidden motives. And so I'm looking at how this might apply in all sorts of intergroup contexts, um, especially in a political context where someone has a different political opinion from me. Do I think that they have ulterior motives because they, uh, because of their different value system? Mm. Um, I'm also looking into conspiracy theories and how, you know, if you see ulterior motives, um, why is it that, that people tend to think things are conspiracies rather than just like, you know, one crazy person? Mm. Um, and part of the, the idea there is that uh, people look for conspiracies to explain events because if you're looking for a, a, a good reason for something big and world-changing to have happened, then looking to a conspiracy, which is inherently a big thing, uh, might be a good explanation for that kind of thing. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so how are you going about um, doing that? Like, are you giving people conspiracy vignettes and just seeing how they react to them based on their own value sets or... Um, I'm yep. curious. And it's funny because actually right before we got on this call, I was driving on the freeway and I passed this van that was like painted bright yellow and it had all of these conspiracy theory um, websites pasted all over it. It was really, it was really funny, but like people who are really into conspiracy theories seem to be somewhat rare. So I'm, I'm curious how you're like conducting that research. Yeah, well, um, basically, I've looked at, I've invented my own conspiracy theories. Um, <laughs> there we go. Uh, and put them in a vignette form and then got people to say whether they believe in them or not. And, and that way we can experimentally manipulate uh, different aspects of the conspiracy to, or of the situation to see if it elicits belief in the conspiracy. Um, and we've paired that with, uh, we've looked at the top 100 most common conspiracies on the Reddit uh, message boards. Um, mm -hmm. And we find that our trade-off justification model-based um, explanation uh, seems to fit pretty well uh, with maybe not quite all of the conspiracy theories, um, but with a lot of them. That's really, that's, that's interesting and, and hilarious. Yet again, some, some great social psych research. Um, that's awesome. All right, Andy, thank you. Thank you very much for contributing this interview. It's been a lot of fun to, to chat with you. Yeah, thanks so much, Amber. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by listeners like you. If you enjoy the series, please consider leaving a tip at www.patreon.com forward slash moral science. Music throughout the program is My Kruby by Kindswider and can be found at www.freemusicarchive.org.